This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Professor Morris Kleiner. He is the uh, AFL-CIO Chair and Professor of Labor Policy at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Morse, thanks for coming on the show. Well, delighted to be with you and thanks for your interest. So I thought I'd get started with a little bit of background. You are a professional economist. Of all the things to be, why be that? Well, I, I heard that it uh, when I was looking at different uh, professions, I heard that in economics you could uh, it would be inside work and no heavy lifting. So I signed in or signed up for it. Sounded like a good deal to me. I like it. Um, so you work a lot in occupational licensing. And in fact, that's why I wanted you on the show because I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about that. But I thought it would make sense to start a little bit with the background, which is what is occupational licensing? Yeah, very, uh, and just to um, move on to it, and this is a very serious topic. It goes back uh, to the, the origins of economics, and Adam Smith uh, talked about occupational licensing. But it, uh, it is where the government says you must have government permission in order to do work. So without getting the state's permission, you cannot provide various types of services. So being a lawyer, being a doctor, being a respiratory therapist, being a plumber. Uh, so you need to get permission from the government in order to do work is sort of the, the basic definition of, uh, of occupational licensing. So just at the beginning, it strikes me that occupational licensing would then hamper people's ability to freely associate and transact businesses as they see fit. And I'm guessing that people who advocate for occupational licensing have some rationales or justifications. What is the, what are the justifications often given for a requirement to have a license to work? Uh, generally, uh, the rationale that the professions give is that if you don't, that you're really protecting the public. Uh, that is, uh, you don't want a brain surgeon uh, to be anyone uh, off the street. Uh, so in order to uh, provide certain types of services, you must meet certain uh, criteria, uh, education, training, apprenticeships, uh, continuing education. So in order to get and maintain a license, you have to uh, jump through certain hurdles or go over certain hurdles in order to get permission to work. So what another way to put this would be occupational licensing is supposed to protect the public at large and consumers from fraud and incompetence? Uh, it, it both uh, incompetence and unscrupulous behavior. So one, uh, so that the government uh, is serving as a monitor of both how good you are at what you do and are you ethical in terms of uh, what you're doing or what practices. So one can imagine someone who is uh, good at what they do, but they're unscrupulous. Uh, they say, whenever you, you go in to get your uh, car uh, repaired, you need a brake job. Uh, you need a new transmission. Uh, 
even though they're good at that, they're unscrupulous and they're telling you things that you really don't need to have done. So both of those are uh, is the initial rationale for, or, or typically given as the initial rationale for why the government needs to pro provide uh, barriers for people to enter a particular occupation. So those are the explanations or justifications given. How do they work on the ground? Are they as effective as these professions claim? Uh, well, it, it depends on the profession and it depends on, on the area. Uh, so that it's very unusual, for example, for a, a lawyer to be disbarred. Uh, so you need to go several places to the right of a decimal point to find uh, many people who've ever been disbarred. Uh, so that uh, it, it may work, but there, it, it, it is very unusual for an individual to uh, be uh, censured or to lose their license because of either incompetence or being unscrupulous. Yes, it does happen. And yes, it is a threat, but it is very unusual. I'm wondering if someone could push back here and, and ask if the reason it's very unusual is because the filtering process or the barrier to entry is so effective to begin with. We're so good at weeding out the bad seeds or the bad apples that you don't need to kick a lot of people out. Well, it, that could be the case, but when you look at uh, where licensing, uh, does licensing improve quality? Uh, and uh, I'm currently looking at evaluating occupational licensing and service quality uh, in a book I'm doing, an, a new book I'm doing with the uh, Upjohn Institute. And, uh, in, and this goes across a number of different nations, and it's very hard or almost impossible to find uh, areas uh, where licensing improves service quality uh, for consumers. So, uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, dentistry, uh, does do tougher requirements result in uh, uh, a better uh, mouth or better teeth? And uh, evidence that I've done with a colleague at the University of Minnesota in cooperation with the dental school, we weren't able to find it. Uh, I've recently looked at Uber drivers, some of whom are licensed, some of whom are not. And we were unable to find consumers uh, giving higher ratings, or one thing that Uber does is keep track of fast starts or fast stops uh, when you're taking an Uber and uh, as a correlative safety. And there was basically no difference between the licensed driver and the unlicensed Uber driver. How do you go about testing this? Do you compare states with different licensing requirements to see the different outputs or outcomes? Is that one way? Yeah, it, it really depends. Uh, yes, in some cases in dentistry, the, the, these regulations are state by state. Uh, in the case of Uber, uh, we looked at different cities. So New York City has very rigid uh, requirements uh, for being an Uber driver. You must be a, a licensed taxi driver. Uh, in New Jersey, there are no such requirements. And we looked at people who were picked up in New Jersey uh, by both licensed uh, New York City drivers and unlicensed New Jersey drivers and, and rated them. Uh, we used a quasi-random assignment uh, to, to examine this, and we found that there was really no difference 
in the quality of the ride, either by consumer satisfaction or by correlates of safety uh, for the regulated driver versus the unregulated driver. And going back to dentistry, tougher uh, regulations in some states didn't result in individuals uh, having uh, better dental care. So if I was a bit cynically minded, I might wonder if occupational licensing might benefit the license holders rather than consumers. So if I can keep people out of my profession, um, this will inhibit competition. Presumably I can charge higher prices. I guess what I'm asking you is, how do license, occupational licensing requirements benefit license holders? Well, they're the, the major beneficiary. Uh, first of all, uh, from some very basic economics, uh, individuals who have a license have a monopoly. Uh, so if, you're, if you want to be a physical therapist and, and use their services, you must go to a licensed physical therapist uh, so that those people have a monopoly. And anytime you have a monopoly, you can charge higher prices because there are fewer people in the occupation. Uh, and that's true across a wide swath of the American economy. Uh, there used to be about 5% of the U.S. economy required permission from government in order to do your work. Now it is between 20 to 25%. So uh, just to give you a, 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 the, the broad brush approach, uh, there are more people who are licensed, that is they require permission from government in order to work, than if you added up all the people who are covered by the minimum wage, plus all the people who are in unions. And licensing is almost twice as much as if you, if you put both of those categories together, minimum wages and unions, licensing is a much bigger part of the U.S. economy than what many people think are, 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 might be uh, other important labor market institutions that are heavily debated in the public arena. It is striking that you make that comparison. I didn't realize that was that was a thing. Uh, it does seem like occupational licensing is um, understudied and under-talked about. But I wanted to go back to something you said, which is you said uh, occupational licensing went from being about 5% of occupations to about 25%, that there's a requirement there. Are there any examples of, say, states or territories that scale back? Like, it seems like the, the direction is one way. Is it maybe the other way, too? Yeah, and, and recently, and, and there's been some pushback. So uh, states like uh, Michigan have deregulated occupations uh, such as uh, uh, auctioneers, city planners. Uh, and uh, that, and uh, uh, my state of Minnesota deregulated watchmakers. I think when the last watchmaker was in an assisted living uh, aged home here and uh, when when he passed on, they deregulated uh, watchmakers in Minnesota. So what, what is off, uh, the occupations that are being deregulated tend to be the smaller, less powerful ones, and certainly uh, others uh, such as uh, electricians and plumbers and uh, cosmetologists and barbers are maintaining uh, their, their licensing requirements. I wonder if it would be helpful to think about um occupational licensing requirements as a kind of rent-seeking or something analogous to rent-seeking? 
No, I, I, no I, I, I would uh, very much agree. Uh, licensing can raise the wages of individuals who are fortunate enough to get a license. So you might want to think of someone on the boat and over everyone else swimming around the boat trying to get on there. Uh, the people on the boat have the license. Uh, they can decide who gets on. And the people who are on the boat make more money. They're, they're in much better shape. Uh, the, the range of uh, wages above what you would expect based on an individual's education and training is somewhere between 10 to 15%. So that's an annuity. The, that is, they make that, mon that much money every year for as long as they're working. Uh, because they were able to meet the requirements of getting a license, getting becoming a certified public accountant, which is licensed, uh, or becoming a licensed architect. All those occupations where you're able to attain a license results in your making more money and being able to limit the number of people who can get in the occupation. So there's a real payoff to getting the license uh, and, and those people who get it have all sorts of benefits of being in the occupation, more money, restricting entry, deciding who gets in, uh, and individuals who don't have uh, the finances, can't spend the time, effort uh, to, uh, to get in the occupation, uh, they're left with a considerably lower wages and fewer opportunities. Returning to something you said earlier, you mentioned, I asked you about the justification or the rationale for occupational licensing requirements, and you mentioned uh, competence. So you want people in these occupations to be competent and you want them to be good, not defrauding customers. I'm, I guess I was puzzled by that because it seems to me, if, if I want to hire someone to do something, right, I want a good or a service, I might check the rating on Google reviews or go to Yelp or talk to someone who's hired them. I'm wondering, given these sorts of, I guess you could call them private sector solutions or non-government based solutions, we, ha we have lots of ways of picking out competent and good practitioners from bad ones. So wouldn't consumers just, like if, if you were to get rid of occupational licensing in a particular industry, wouldn't consumers just opt for like consumer reports or Google reviews? Certainly, that's another way to find out whether individuals are providing a high-quality service. Uh, and do you need uh, bureaucrats and state capitals uh, deciding who gets in, who doesn't, what the appropriate test score is to become a certified public accountant or to become an attorney? Uh, all those are issues that uh, the profession themselves decide or that the state decides. Uh, and without occupational licensing, certainly uh, there's the ability on these private methods of determining competence or service quality that might do as well, if not better, uh, than, than the public sector regulations. And, and also the one other issue is the capture of these uh, boards. So for example, uh, all these licensing uh, professions have boards regulating them. Generally, the members on the board are members of the occupation. So there's a real conflict of interest. Uh, if you're a dentist, you don't want to have someone uh, who's uh, selling tooth whitening kits somewhere uh, 
uh, would, uh, would really uh, reduce your business. So you restrict those individuals from providing tooth whitening kits because uh, you, can, you can do it a lot cheaper than coming to the dentist's office uh, where they're going to charge you several times as much as getting a kit uh, at a Walgreens or other pharmacy uh, or a Target. Uh, so uh, that, that's, that's, that's another issue that licensing restricts competition. So they, they, it's not only getting into the occupation, it's also what the people in the occupation can do and what others, uh, for example, someone selling a tooth whitening kit or someone uh, who might be a horse tooth filer, uh, filing the teeth of horses, veterinarians decide that that type of work uh, is really the work of a veterinarian and they get the police powers of the state to limit that, limit that procedure to only veterinarians and not allow other individuals to provide those services. So that's another area that licensing uh, can result in problems for consumers, uh, but yet result in higher incomes uh, and increase uh, employment for those people lucky enough to be licensed. Yeah, it seems, uh, just thinking about this as you were talking, that if you have people in the profession whose job it is to govern licensure, and the government itself or the state itself isn't really uh, in a good position to know, like a state official wouldn't know, you know a good dentist from a bad one probably, that takes specialized training. It seems like this system is set up to be abused. Maybe not intentionally, but it seems like it's ripe for abuse. Right, you, you have a state that's not really in a good place to know good practitioners from bad ones. So you need insider information. You then hire insiders to do that sort of work, but then they use it to insulate themselves and further their own interests. Yeah, there was a recent Supreme Court decision uh, involving uh, the North Carolina Dental Association where, where the hypothetical that I pose uh, actually happened. That is, uh, in order to be on the dental board, you had to be a practicing dentist. Uh, and if you're a practicing dentist, you want to protect you and other people uh, in the state from uh, what they would view as being unwarranted competition. So they did not allow individuals to sell tooth whitening kits in malls and spas. This case went all the way to the Supreme Court and in a six to three decision, uh, the Supreme Court decided that, yes, in fact, uh, these dentists were only looking after themselves. They were not responsible to any public entity, uh, and they were restricting competition. And consequently, the, uh, they could be sued. That was one of the things for uh, violating the Sherman Antitrust Act, potentially. Uh, and uh, they, the dental board had to be uh, had to be responsible to a level of government, that is, individuals who are in, uh, who, who are elected officials, that being either the legislature or the governor, in order to oversee uh, the work of these dentists. So there's a, there, there are other cases like this, but this one uh, really has served as a bellwether case uh, saying that uh, that occupations 
serve to restrict competition, in this case, competition from unlicensed practitioners, and that individuals who are on the board are members uh, or, or gain a business from restricting competition, and they are not overseen by the public. There's no accountability, in other words, by, uh, from the licensing boards by the public. I'm also wondering if you could say something about um, worker mobility. I mean, if I'm moving from, say, Alabama to California, I'm presumably going to bump up against some, if, if I'm a working in a, in a licensed uh, profession, I'm going to bump up against some occupational licensing requirements. I imagine that would inhibit worker mobility, at least in the United States, wouldn't it? Right. Well, and there's uh, Alex de Tocqueville writing about the United States in the 1830s. Uh, quote what was uh, observed that people in, in different occupations switched from being a lawyer to a dentist to a farmer to a preacher. And it was very easy to, to go in and, and leave different occupations. That is no longer the case. Uh, the, the ability to move across state lines tends to be inhibited. And also the ability to enter and stay in an occupation is inhibited. So one thing is that once you're in an occupation, you have to take continuing education classes, which are fairly expensive. You have to pay fees uh, to the to state government, which uh, often are several hundred dollars. Uh, so it's very expensive to stay in the occupation, which limits part-time people. So if you're a full-time per person, you don't want part-timers to take your business. So one way to do that is uh, have lots of uh, continuing education classes, have fees in the hundreds of dollars, and that that cuts off the part-timers and leaves you, uh, if you're a full-time uh, practitioner, uh, much more work. Uh, and the issue that you raised is it's very difficult to move from state to state. Uh, there's a case coming up in Minnesota here. There's a uh, cosmetologist who was uh, practicing uh, cutting hair in Wisconsin. They wanted to move to Minnesota. And the board said, no, you didn't meet the requirements of Minnesota. And we all know that hair in Minnesota is much different than hair in Wisconsin. Uh, so they had to go through several uh, different classes, spend a lot of money, a lot of time in order to uh, move from uh, the neighboring state of, of Wisconsin to uh, Minnesota. And this is just one example. Now, there has been pushback. For example, the state of Arizona recently passed a law which said if you're licensed in one state, you can come to Minnesota, to Arizona and practice uh, if you're a resident of that state. Uh, if, if you move from uh, California to Arizona, you can come and immediately be given a license if you are uh, residing in Arizona. And there have been similar uh, pieces of legislation in other states allowing individuals to uh, move across state lines. Uh, the other area that I've mentioned is the ability to enter an occupation. So licensing reduces what I call labor market fluidity. Fluidity being the ability to have labor markets be efficient. The Alex de Tocqueville uh, book on uh, democracy in America, uh, the ability to move across uh, occupations is dramatically impeded by occupational licensing. So the ability, if you don't like one job, you can go to another, 
and work and, and see what that job involves. It's much more difficult when you have occupational licensing. Uh, it, it's easier, it, it's much more difficult to, to enter, but it's also what we find, what I call sort of the Hotel California effect. If you're an old uh, Eagles rock and roll uh, band uh, aficionado, that, uh, that once you come and you enter an occupation that's licensed, you hardly ever leave. Uh, so uh, to, to paraphrase that uh, great song, uh, that, uh, that, that's another issue with licensing. It reduces the ability of people to move to, uh, if, if job aid isn't good for them or is declining, it's very difficult to move to job B if job B is, is licensed. Uh, so there's, there's the inability to move across state lines, and there's also the inability to decide to, to change jobs and especially if you want to move to a licensed occupation, it's particularly difficult for those individuals who are employed because it takes a lot of time and effort and schooling to enter those occupations. Individuals who are unemployed, uh, their, their, uh, their cost of, uh, of learning these, uh, these new skills are, are much easier. So that, those are some of the differences we found in our research. Having read a lot about this, I came across, a, I forget the, the author, it's from a number of years ago, and they argued that one of the advantages was of occupational licensure was that it signaled for, um, it signaled for certain groups non-felon status. So at least in the United States, African-American men have this problem of signaling non-felon status. Um, in fact, there was a, an effort in a number of states to, ban, it's called ban the box, where you have to check whether or not you have a felony conviction, and that having a license sort of helped these folks overcome that barrier. Um, I'm curious what you think about that. No, I, I think that's, that's large, that's a positive aspect. When you think about occupational licensing, there are benefits and there are costs. I've sort of been uh, focusing on the cost side, but certainly one of the benefits uh, is that it does signal that in order to get a license, you have not uh, generally have committed a felony. If you're, not, if, if you're uh, an ex-offender uh, in, in many states, you cannot get a license. So you can't be a barber, you can't be an electrician or a plumber. Uh, now that's a real problem for those individuals. That is, they can't enter occupations. In some cases, if they're incarcerated, uh, they teach people to cut hair or they teach people to be a plumber. But when they get out, uh, they find that uh, if, you've, uh, you're, if you're an ex-offender, you can't get a license. But it does signal to individual African-Americans or uh, individuals that may have had, uh, th that, that are, come into criminal justice issues at a much higher rate, that if you, uh, if you have a license, uh, that means that you have not, uh, had, you're not an ex-offender. So that does result in benefits to those individuals who are licensed, and it does provide that type of, of, of positive signal. Now that signal comes at a pretty high cost. That is, you're not measuring the fact that many uh, minorities uh, are not able to enter the occupation because they have less wealth. And to enter an occupation, you've got to take the time away from work. You have to pay the education. Uh, you have to do the apprenticeships. So all these take a lot of time. And if you don't have many assets, 
which the minority communities generally do not, uh, it keeps a lot more people out of the professions and out of the occupations that are licensed. So th those, those, what I'm saying is there are benefits and costs and you need to, yes, it provides a signal that someone is not an ex-offender if you've got a license, but it comes at the cost of keeping lots of um, minority members from entering the occupation given their wealth is uh, generally uh, much lower than uh, the non-minority population. Would there be some way to, to keep the, the, the benefits and get rid of the costs? And by that I mean, would there be some cheaper, more efficient way for minority groups, say, uh, to signal non-felon status without thereby also excluding lots of felons who might want to change their lives and find meaningful employment? Right. Is there some way to sort of thread the needle, I guess? Well, uh, certainly licensing is a very expensive way to do that. So that uh, the idea that you're keeping a lot of uh, minority group members uh, from entering the occupation, but it, it does signal this positive uh, effect. And, and that's what they found is you, you started out your question with ban the box. Uh, the ban the box uh, doesn't signal it in the past. Uh, if you say I've never committed a felony uh, and you've signed off and uh, under threat of being terminated, if they ever find out you, you are an ex, uh, uh, an ex offender, uh, that, uh, that it, it, it does help those individuals who say they haven't committed, uh, they're not an ex offender, but it keeps out uh, many from applying or, uh, or, or getting jobs uh, that they may be qualified for. Uh, and, and that's one of the issues that, that we're, we're finding is having these uh, uh, licensing restrictions and not allowing individual second chances, again, has a disparate uh, effect on minority populations because they're more likely to uh, have run-ins or, or be uh, ex-offenders. And as a result, uh, they are precluded at a much higher rate from entering uh, medium and low-skilled uh, occupations, that is entering, becoming a barber or a cosmetologist, hairdresser, or, or becoming a plumber, uh, or, uh, or uh, working uh, in, in the uh, beauty industry, which is heavily licensed. Uh, so all these serve to, uh, to disproportionately affect minority communities uh, because of occupational licensing. You mentioned second chances, which relates to my next question, which is about recidivism. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, the relationship between recidivism rates and occupational licensing requirements. I know there's some research that's been done on this. Yeah, and, and some of the work that uh, we're looking at right now, we're, we're getting some data. We have some, what arguably is the, the best database in, in terms of looking at uh, how these law how these laws dealing with occupational licensing and ex-offenders have uh, impacted uh, their ability to enter occupations. So uh, the basic idea is if uh, one quarter of, the, of all jobs are licensed jobs and you can't, and these are generally higher paying jobs, and uh, if you can't enter those jobs, then you're more likely to go back to your old, old line of work, which is uh, to be an ex-offender, uh, to, uh, to, to be a, uh, 
commit uh, robberies or to uh, engage in other activities uh, that uh, that uh, would violate the law. So all these uh, are potential outcomes in terms of occupational licensing that that not allowing individuals a second chance reduces uh, their ability to get into the legitimate or the uh, the occupations that uh, that are uh, that are lawful as opposed to unlawful occupations. I'm wondering to what extent too that licensing requirements push people into black market work, and I don't just mean being a criminal. I mean something like cutting hair on the side or right working in and working without a license. Yeah, I, I'm sure that that's happening, uh, and and certainly, but you you have. Uh, very good monitors. So if, if you're cutting hair on the side and the licensed barber finds out about it, they're likely to report you because you're taking away business. So you have the monitors of occupational licensing are the people who are already in the occupation. And they're going to tell the state boards, they're going to tell others that Jane is uh, doing uh, hair, uh, is being a cosmetologist in their house. Uh, and they're going to come and tell the inspectors that this is what they're doing, and you're likely to have a knock on the door saying, are you providing unlicensed services? Uh, certainly in the case, there was a case in Florida where uh, there was a sting operation where they were trying to, to uh, have handymen, uh, and they told them that, uh, that uh, they were going to be doing uh, wiring or they were going to be doing plumbing. Those are all licensed work. The handyman said uh, they could do the work, and in fact, they were unlicensed, and they were arrested. So there are a lot of these sting operations that are happening. Uh, one of the most prominent ones uh, is, the, is the one I mentioned in Florida, where uh, there are both the state is trying to catch individuals who are doing unlicensed work, the sort of sting operations, and you have people in the occupation who find out that uh, that individuals are providing unlicensed work, and they are the ones who are going to report that to the authorities and shut them down. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and that relates to occupational licensing. I'm curious, though. You know, we saw this with uh, medical workers um, going from state, you know, moving from one state to say New York to help. And I'm wondering to what extent the coronavirus pandemic has exposed the issue of occupational licensing. Uh, that's been a, a real issue. And what we've seen is many states, and uh, we have data from Colorado, for example, where they dramatically relaxed the occupational licensing requirements as a result of the pandemic. So for example, respiratory therapists, nurses, uh, individuals who are directly involved with working with patients who had the coronavirus. Uh, they immediately gave temporary licenses to the current graduates of respiratory therapy school. Same thing with nurses. Uh, and they allowed individuals, when they peaked in places like Denver, they allowed individuals from other states to come in and get temporary licenses, emergency provisional licenses, which were good for 60 or 90 days. And that significantly increased the number of practitioners uh, that were directly dealing with uh, patients who uh, had the coronavirus. So 
relaxing these requirements in two ways, allowing new and uh, one other uh, area is they allowed retired nurses to come back, individuals who let their, their licenses lapse. They allowed them to come back uh, and work without getting, uh, without meeting the requirements of a license, which would be taking exams, uh, meeting residency requirements, meeting uh, 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 internships re uh, and taking continuing education classes, all that was waived as a consequence of the pandemic uh, because they needed these individuals to deal with the surge uh, in the number of patients uh, with COVID. Do you think that development in the face of a pandemic weakens the case for occupational licensing? Like, do you think it would be hard to go back to pre-COVID practices? Uh, I think it will be, but it, it'll be interesting to see because you have the Respiratory Therapy Association, you have the Nurses Association, uh, all saying that these are uh, uh, requirements that are critical for uh, high quality patient care. Uh, so it will be interesting to see. I, I'm making no predictions, uh, but at least in light of uh, the, the, these people are, are, the story would be these people are, are being given battlefield commissions uh, that uh, in, in the case of a war, you, get, you allow individuals to, to do these tasks. So individuals who don't have a license, either new graduates or retirees or people coming from other states, and in Colorado and in many other states like Minnesota, they were allowing people to come to the that state who had not met the Minnesota requirements because of the pandemic. And uh, we'll, we'll evaluate to see what happened uh, to individuals who are being treated with these uh, previously unlicensed individuals if, if their care was worse, and certainly if, if there was no difference in the quality of, of care than uh, the, the question of uh, was licensing serving its purpose of protecting the public. And that will be an issue that will be certainly open to question. There's a rhetorical, very puzzling rhetorical move um, to, to liken uh, lessening these requirements to a battlefield promotion. One thing that's puzzling about it is that you would expect in the middle of a pandemic that if licensing requirements were really that important to exclude fraud and incompetence, that they would be all the more important in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I, I think that uh, those are, those are certainly uh, issues that are open. But uh, there was there were there was this, a, a real problem of healthcare capacity that uh, they were that uh, the hospitals and the workers uh, were were at a hundred percent capacity, uh, and as a result, uh, they were allowing. Uh, the new, the graduates who had not fulfilled their requirements, they hadn't taken the tests, or individuals who were a long time were retired who uh, were, were coming back uh, in, in light of the pandemic. So it is unclear and it will, it will be to be determined whether these individuals provided uh, sufficient care to compensate uh, for the fact uh, that, that they were uh, that they hadn't met the state requirements. Uh, and I gave you two examples. One is Colorado, the other is Minnesota. Both of those relaxed 
their uh, licensing requirements for individuals who are directly dealing with the pandemic. My final question is this. If you could flip a switch and change one aspect of occupational licensing, what would it be and why? Uh, I think overall is just relaxing the requirements. I think the sort of things that we've been dealing with uh, in the pandemic, allowing uh, individuals to enter these occupations uh, and uh, and uh, allowing individuals to both enter the occupation uh, more easily, uh, requirements uh, of staying in the occupation, and finally allowing people to move across state lines. So all these uh, in terms of an overarching uh, uh, issue is the relaxation of occupational licensing requirements to allow more individuals to enter these occupations without there being the barriers to entry, without there being the hoops to jump through that, that is currently the case. And this would allow, number one, more individuals to enter the occupation, especially this would be the case for low-income individuals who don't have the assets to spend time and money to, to enter the occupation or allow people to go to where the jobs are across states in terms of the U.S. And it will allow consumers more choice. That is, there'd be more practitioners and that would probably lower the cost and increase the quality of care that they receive. So again, the relaxation of these requirements, allowing people to enter, uh, would be my uh, overarching wish uh, in terms of this area. But again, uh, one needs to, uh, to calibrate that relative to the costs of allowing these individuals. So, uh, uh, I might add that the state of Colorado, whenever a new occupation seeks to become licensed, they very carefully go through a cost-benefit analysis. They provide the information, but the ultimate arbitrator uh, is the governor and the state legislators to decide if uh, an occupation needs to be licensed. So, for example, occupations such as music therapists, interior designers are constantly seeking to become licensed across various states, yet states like uh, Colorado do their cost benefit and provide that as input to making decisions. And as part of that, just to get back to my uh, initial uh, uh, wish, is that uh, should uh, the cost be greater than the benefits, and relaxation of these requirements to allow uh, um, greater fluidity. You want more grease in the labor market and a lot less sand. Sand gums up the work. Grease allows more people to enter and makes the labor market much easier to, uh, to go through and, and to, uh, to go from job to job or, or allows individuals to go to, to where the opportunities are. If someone wants to find out more about you or your work, where should they go? I, I have a website at the University of Minnesota. I am employed at the Humphrey School, and uh, my email is right on my website. So just uh, the best thing is just Google me. Uh, luckily, I have an unusual last name. So if they just say Kleiner at umn.edu, uh, you can go right to my website or Google Kleiner 
and uh, go to my website at the University of Minnesota. I'm the first thing that pops up. And there's a lot of work that I've done uh, dealing with the issues that I've talked about with you today. Uh, and also uh, uh, some of the current and forthcoming books uh, that, uh, that I'm uh, working on uh, on this topic, both in the U.S. and abroad. Professor Kleiner, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. It's a great set of questions. And uh, thank you again for the invitation. You're welcome.